Hebrews chapter 11. Keeping faith, having faith in the midst of an unbelieving world. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse number 1 is very common. Everybody knows this verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Let me repeat it. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. In this verse we're told that faith looks two different directions. First of all, it looks forward. It's the substance of things hoped for. The word hope always refers to the future. It makes no sense for me to ask you how many hoped to be here last week. You may have wished it, but hoping doesn't project itself to the past. How many hope to be here today? Don't answer that, because if you do, you don't understand the word hope. Hope doesn't refer to what is already presently a fact. You don't have to hope to be here. You are here. How many hope to be in our building next month? Now that got a response. Because hope is always directed towards the future. And God has given promises. He's given promises to me as an individual. He's given promises to you as an individual. He's given promises to us as a collective body of people. He's given promises to all believers everywhere in the world. There's an ultimate promise of the return and the coming of Jesus and all his power and all of his glory. But faith looks forward to the time when God makes good on his promises. How many know the hardest thing in the world is to wait? Anybody discover that? And how many discover that God seems to be on a different timetable than you and me? I've said it often, God's too slow. So it seems that way. I'll never forget the time I went to an evangelistic meeting as a young man back in Canada and the, the preacher had a big sign on the back wall, a great big banner on the back wall. And it said, Jesus is never late. And then it was signed, Lazarus. Jesus is never late. We're looking forward. Faith looks forward to the things that God has promised that we are still waiting for it to be fulfilled. So our heart, our expectations for the future are full. But there also is an upwards orientation because it's also the evidence of things not seen. That is a reference to the power of God that you and I cannot see with our natural eyes. It's the testimony of the faithfulness of God that we can't see with our natural eyes. It's the promise of the power of God. Because how many know from getting from here to the future can be full of challenges, can be full of obstacles, can be full of hardships. And while we believe in the future, we also believe that God has the power to take us to the future in spite of all the obstacles 
that are ahead of us. So in verse number 1 of this chapter, he sets up what faith is all about. It's a looking towards the future when God will fulfill all his promises with perfection and is also looking to God's present power to get us there to our, our future. Now, in the context of the book of Hebrews, which I have shared briefly before, these original readers of this letter were really in need of courage. They need to learn to stand in the midst of a world of opposition. They had in the past experienced great persecution. There's clues of that all through this book. Great persecution. They had suffered the loss of their property. They're probably stripped of their citizenship if they ever had any citizenship. They're weary with persecution. They've lost their worldly goods. They're being shunned by society. They have experienced all that in the past. And you know, it would do everybody a world of good to go visit Christians in some foreign countries and to see the pressures that they have to live with. We really have it quite easy here. We really, really do. These original readers are now facing a fresh wave of persecution with the very real threat of martyrdom. Very possibly these people who read this letter are going to be called upon to lay their lives down to spill their blood for their faith. So they're facing things that nobody in this room has had to face. Very difficult situations. So the pastor wants to encourage them not to flee from the difficulty, but to face the difficulty knowing on the other side of the difficulty is the fulfillment of the things that God has promised. And he wants to remind us that let's not pay attention to the difficulty that we're facing because if you could see the end of the story, have I ever told you what the end of the story is? The end of the story is glory and it makes the difficulties we are presently in fade with insignificance. As harsh as it may sound, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, Paul said, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So he wants to give them courage to go through the difficult time they are facing, knowing that the end of the story is worth it. And so he's going to develop in Hebrews chapter 11, for the main part, the history of two men of God. The first one is Abraham, and the second one is Moses. He's going to give you much about the story of Abraham and much about the story of Moses. These are the two main people in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham was given the promise of a son, of descendants, and of a land. He received the promise. And then through the time of Moses, that promise came or was coming to its fulfillment as the people of God would enter in to the promised land. It is through these two men, Abraham and Moses, that the, the people of God became established as a reality in the earth. Through these two men, the two factors of faith that were just described in verse 1 are defined and illustrated for us. The story of Abraham is going to focus, as we will see shortly, that you and I don't belong to this world. You were born in it, 
But you have changed citizenship when you became a believer. And you aren't of this world. This world is not your home. You and I have a future that is literally out of this world. We have a future and this world is not it. The life of Abraham is going to exemplify that greatly. The life of Moses is going to illustrate this. When you make a confession that you don't belong to this world then the world just doesn't seem to love you anymore. Have you ever noticed that? Just doesn't seem to love you anymore. As a matter of fact, you will incur their wrath, their opposition, and you will experience great hardship for turning your back on the world. The world will not be pleased. And so what Moses is going to illustrate the evidence of things not seen, he's going to illustrate the power of God in your life to handle all of that so you can get to your destiny. That's what this is going to show. And what you're going to see is that the pastor, the author who writes this, is going to take seven scenes from the history and the life of Abraham, and he's also going to take seven scenes from the history and the life of Moses, And you're going to see how he crafts these two stories uh, in a very real that actually relate to each other. Remember last week when we talked about Hebrew poetry, I used the word chiasm for those of you that were here. You're going to see a chiasm in effect. And if you don't know what it is, listen to last week's SoundCloud. Uh, It's just a piece of, of literature, the way of writing. But the true story, the truth... And all of this is always going to be in scene number four in the life of Abraham and scene number four in the life of Moses. Because in a chiasm where you've got a reverse image happening here, the centerpiece is always the truth that God wants us to hear. Before we look at this, and let me explain what a pilgrim is. What is a pilgrim? Because this chapter only makes sense to people who are on a journey. If you try to understand faith and the subject of of Hebrews 11 without understanding that you're on a journey, you will miss most of what is in this chapter. You and I don't belong to this world. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. And when it says that you are a pilgrim, that means you are on a journey. You're going somewhere. Now, in all religions of the world, interesting enough, including the Christian religion, there's this concept of pilgrimage. Now, I think Christians have this tendency to settle down a lot, and you will look at other faiths around the world. And the concept of being on a pilgrim is more evident in other, other faiths around the world than it is for Christians. Christians tend to settle. But if you go to a Muslim faith, they're on a journey. And they're always making pilgrimages. And they're always going somewhere. Christians have this tendency to settle down, which we should not. Because we also are pilgrims in this earth. And to get the definition of a pilgrim, there's four things you must realize what it means to be a pilgrim. The first thing, in all religions of the world, this, this works, as, as including our Christian faith. The first thing about a pilgrim is that when you receive a promise from God, you are called to make a break with your former life. 
You have to leave it behind. You are called to make a break with your former life. Abraham had to get up and leave where he was. Are we understanding that? You're called to a new destination. You have to make a break with your former life. The second thing that's true about pilgrims is this. You are going out to a definite place. There is a definite destination in mind. We are not putting in time, and we are not just wandering around in circles, just putting in time, waiting for Jesus to come back. We are in pursuit of a definite place. Even if you don't know what it is, Abraham was called out not knowing where he was going, but he knew that he had to leave, he had to make a break, and he knew he had to go to a place that God was going to show him. That there is a definite destination to which we are headed. We're not putting in time, and we're not wandering in circles. There is a definite destination to which we are going. The third thing about every pilgrim is this, that this place that we're going to has great spiritual significance. For us as believers, it's our inheritance. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God that has foundations. It has spiritual significance. It just happens to be the inheritance of the Son of God that He's going to share with you and me. A definite spiritual significance to the place that we are called to. And the fourth thing that really applies in Hebrews chapter 11 about pilgrims, as you make the journey, you will be challenged constantly by obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And you will be challenged and you need to overcome. The journey is not easy. It's difficult and you will be challenged. But that's what faith is all about. It's the evidence of things not seen. Knowing where you're going, and it's being able to see what eyes cannot see, you see the power of God to get you through every challenge and every obstacle so you can arrive to the end of your pilgrimage. Without understanding what a pilgrim is, we will have great trouble grasping what the author intends us to get out of Hebrews chapter 11, having faith in the midst of an unbelieving world. Let's go to the first example of Abraham, the first of seven stories of Abraham. You find it in chapter 11 and verse number 8. This is the first one. The first selection, the first scene out of his life. And that is says this, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out not knowing where he went. The first thing that the writer wants to give us is this. We have to leave our past. You, we have to depart from what we think home is. We have to make a break. And Abraham, even though he didn't know where he was going, he knew it was a definite place, he knew it had spiritual significance, it was his inheritance, and he makes a break. That's the first thing. He departs from the old life, departs from life as you know it. There's a break with the past, you depart from home. The second Selection is in verses 9 and 10. The second selection from the life of Abraham, it says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, 
as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Even after he got to the promised land, he still considered himself a stranger because he knew that the promised land, the land of Canaan, that physical land, even that was not the fulfillment of what God had promised. That there was a greater fulfillment past that and he was looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And the second thing he, we learned from this that this world is not our home. We have left our past, but even as we leave our past, nothing in this world is our home. We don't belong here. And he makes this decision. He chooses to live as a stranger. He chooses to live in a tent. Now, there's no foundations to a tent. That means he has not permanently attached himself to this present world. He, he was a rich man, he could have built houses, he could have built cities with the wealth that he had, but he chose not to attach himself to this world, and he makes this decision, I am here as a stranger. And so he was continually and habitually looking for the city whose builder and maker is God that has foundations. He looked for that which was permanent, and he looked for that which is enduring. That's the second thing we want to learn. The third thing we find is in verses 11 and 12. The third scene out of the life of Abraham is verses 11 and 12. It says, Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. And she was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. That's the evidence of things not seen. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even as one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky and the multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore, innumerable. Now what's so fascinating here, Sarah is too old to have a child. She should be a great grandmother by now. Physically speaking, it is impossible for her to conceive. It is impossible for her to bear a child, to go through it. She's past the age. Her body is as good as dead when it comes to bearing children. Now, that doesn't complicate it enough. How about Abraham himself in verse 12? It says, She came from him who was as good as dead. So when it came to Abraham's ability to father a child, he's as good as dead. Now, I know somebody who was 74 and had a child to a much younger wife. But Abraham was past that. He's well beyond the age of 74. He cannot possibly have a child. In other words, what God is going to do is this. He'll bring a child out of death. When death seems to have won the day, decaying the body of both him and her, and they are both reckoned as good as dead, the child comes forth. That's the evidence of things not seen. A child out of death. In other words, for God's promise to be fulfilled... It is not upon your ability or my ability to organize it, manipulate it, bring it to pass. 
God's promise only comes to pass when we experience what's called resurrection power. There's no sense trying to get God's will to come to pass any other way. Only by resurrection power. They're as good as dead. They have no ability to do this. But there's a thing called the God of the resurrection. It's the, it's the resurrection power of God that brings His promises to pass, not our abilities and not our manipulations and not us making things happen. It's His resurrection power. Are we catching that? How many have tried to bring God's will to pass? How many have given God a little help along? You know, Anybody try to set things up and give God a little help and push things forward a bit? Uh, am I, some of you are smiling, but I'm the only one admitting to it. You know, uh, No, no. The promise comes past because God is the God of the resurrection. Not because I have the ability to push things ahead. Because God is the God of the resurrection. Now that is a hard lesson to learn because we're impatient people and we're always providing opportunities for God to hurry things up a bit. Aren't we? We always drop hints thinking you know, we could help God out if we would say this or we would do that. And God would just take advantage of our efforts to make things happen. And, and uh, no, they tried and tried. They had to say, this is impossible. We're as good as dead. And God says, finally, now it's time for resurrection power. And there's truth in that. The visions that God gives you has to die because they have to die because you can't bring it to pass and you've got to come to the conclusion you can't bring it to pass and when your vision dies God can resurrect it with his resurrection power and there's truth in that and so you've got those first three lessons from the life of Abraham I figure that's in sermon in itself already but let's now go to the first three examples from the life of Moses and you have to go to chapter 11 and verse 23 to see the first scene that's selected from the life of Moses 11.23 says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. How many remember the story in the book of Exodus? That there were too many Hebrew boys being born. They're going to drown them in the Nile River. And when Moses was born, or he wasn't named Moses at that time, but when this baby was born, the parents by faith had a witness of the Spirit about that child. That there was a call of God on that child and he could not die. And not being afraid of the king's commandment because faith helps overcome fear in our lives. That they hid him for the space of uh, three months, I believe it is. And then you know the story how they put him in that little ark. Almost like the story of Noah is an ark. There's a coincidence there. Puts him in a little ark covered with pitch like Noah's ark was covered with pitch into the, into the water. And you know the story of what happened to that little baby. Now, what lesson do we learn in that first story? Look what it is. A child is delivered out of death. Interesting. A child is delivered out of death. The second scene from the life of Moses is in verses 24 to 26. It says, by faith, when he was come to years, Moses, when he, then when he gets to be an old man, he makes a decision. 
He refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He makes a choice, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. He made a decision, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses saw the end of the story. And the end of the story, all the glory of Egypt came to nothing. And even though the people of God were in a point of suffering and affliction and opposition and in slavery and the hostile world was against them, since he knew what the end of the story was, he chose his lot with the suffering people rather than having the position of authority in Egypt. He made a decision. What was that decision? This world was not his home. And he left it. He made a decision. He left it. The third story, I wonder what it's going to be. Can you take a guess? You're seeing a pattern develop here? The third story about Moses is in verse number 27. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He departed from the home that he grew up with. He knew it. He departed from his home. See how the faith of Moses had been growing. It starts out that he was hidden by his parents. Then he refuses his privileged position. And then he renounces his former life. His, his faith has gone from seeing the reward, verse number 27 goes on to seeing him, himself, who is invisible. It's one thing to see the end of the story, as another thing to see this God who has promised you. He saw God himself. You see, Moses had learned to see God. Uh, when you're going to go through the challenges that Moses went through as the leader of the Exodus... You make sure you heck you can see your king. He learned to see God at the burning bush. He learned to see God at Mount Sinai. You know, God causes glory. And then it goes on later and says that Moses learned to see God face to face. He had learned to see God. But those three lessons are setting us up for the important lesson about faith. It requires that we break our allegiance to our former home require us to confess that nothing in this world we consider our home and we have to understand that the God who fulfills the promise to us is a God who is greater than death that's what the fourth story from Abraham and the fourth story from Moses is going to teach us God is greater than death Let's go to Abraham, and you find in chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Verses 13 to 16 are parentheses, which I can talk about later. But the fourth scene from the life of Abraham is verses 17 to 19. God is greater than death. It's the story of when God tested Abraham and asked him to offer up Isaac. Remember the story? Isaac is what, maybe 13 years of age? at this time and um, but wait a second help me out here but 
if God's going to fulfill this promise, then I have to have the son, and the son that I have has got to have at least one son, and if Isaac dies, what happens to the promise of God? If Isaac dies, what happens to the promise of God? And Abraham is asked to sacrifice his vision that God gave him. Now there's a deep one for you. Asked to sacrifice the vision that God gave him. If Isaac dies, the whole vision perishes. The promise of God perishes. And yet Abraham has got to reconcile this. If Isaac dies, how can God keep his promise to me? Because God is not a man that he should lie. He, God has sworn and will not repent. And he confirmed this promise with an oath. And God has sworn. God has given an oath. God has given a promise. He cannot lie. And yet now he is requiring me to lay down the very vision that he's given me. I have to give it up. I have to give up my promise. And then he comes to this conclusion. If God wants to take the life of Isaac, I guess he's just going to have to raise Isaac from the dead to keep his promise. Are you hearing the significance of that truth? Lay your vision down because it's going to be the God of the resurrection who will bring it to pass. God is greater than death. What that means, if we die, there is a destiny beyond death. Death does not disannul the promise of God to any human being, no matter when in life they die. I've got a secret for you. At the end of time, God will raise you from the dead and you'll discover that all His promises to your life will be perfectly fulfilled when He raises you from the dead. God is greater than death. Death does not have the last word. You could shout Amen or do something. That's good news. Death does not have the last word. And then the fourth example from the life of Moses is in chapter 11, verse number 28. And this is about Passover. Now you know what happened in Passover, the ten plagues. This is plague number ten. The death of the firstborn in the whole land. Who will be exempt from this? Who's going to escape death? Only those who celebrate the Passover. And if the blood of the Passover lamb is sprinkled over the doorway, then when the death angel comes, he will pass over your house. And you're going to see that God is greater than death. If you die... He can raise you from the dead to fulfill His promise. Or He can keep you from dying His choice. Either way, death loses and God wins. Come on now. Death loses and God wins. And in the life of Moses, what you have here is three examples of hardship in the beginning of the life of Moses... And when you see that God is greater than death, then you're going to see three examples of great victory once you know that death never wins.
You're going to see three examples of great victory. Very quickly, examples 5, 6, and 7 of the life of Abraham are chapters 11, verses 20, where you see that Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, where Jacob will bless the sons of Joseph. And in verse 22, where it says that Joseph mentions his bones. All three of those stories conclude the history of the family of Abraham. And what you have is Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. And what was the blessing about? Things to come. God has given the future. I'm dying before it happens. But I'm going to pass the the hope of the future to you. And then when Jacob comes to the end of his life, he takes the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he blesses them concerning the future that God has given. And then in verse number 22, Joseph mentioned his bones when he is dying. You see, all these men died in faith. But I got news for you, it doesn't matter, God's greater than death. And your death does not disown all the promises of God. And Joseph knew that God had given a promise about a land. And, and, and to great-grandfather Abraham, a promise was given. And it said for over 430 years, you're going to be oppressed, and then God will visit you. And Joseph knows all this history of oppression is coming, but he also knows that there's a day that God's going to come to deliver. And he said, when God comes to deliver, I won't be around physically, but my bones will be, and I don't want my bones in Egypt. I want my bones to be in the promise of God. So take my bones with you when you go. That's 400 years in advance. He knows at the resurrection he wants to be raised in the land of God's promise. You know, he's just faith. It's all about the future. Do you understand what your future is? Do you understand the end of the story? Do you understand that the end of the story is glory? Do you understand that there is a rest that remains for the people of God? Do you understand that we're receiving an unshakable kingdom that cannot be moved? Do we understand that there's a city whose builder and maker is God? Do you understand that this present world is going to be destroyed by fire? Therefore, I'm not going to invest in it. I'm not going to put my heart in it because it's history. I've got an eternal destiny, an unshakable kingdom that I'm going to share the glory of the Son of God. Can you imagine that? You can do it too if you like. Therefore, I'm going to live for the future. I'm going to train my children to live for the future. I'll train my grandchildren to live for the future. I'm going to tell them where the reality is because this world is not where the reality is. It's on its way out. And there is a reality when Jesus comes. There is the reality. And then very quickly, the three stories from the life of Moses. 11.29, the Red Sea parts. God's greater than death. Red Sea, no problem. If there's a Red Sea between you and the promise of God, no problem. I said no problem. If there's a Red Sea between you and the promise of God, no problem. God's greater than death. He can bring children out of death. He can save them from death. He can bring a child out of somebody as good as dead. God's greater than death. He's the God of the resurrection. And He wants to exercise that resurrection power. And if He wants to part the Red Sea, it is not an issue. You can't do it. I can't do it. Sometimes we try. We confess ourselves. We're blue in our face trying to get mountains to move. 
Tell you what, God can do it. No problem. He can turn everything around in a moment. You can go from prisoner in Egypt to prime minister of Egypt, just ask Joseph, in a single day. He can do exceedingly above all that you ask or think. Because it's not on our ability to bring the promise to pass. It's his resurrection power. And he'll exercise that resurrection power, if it's needed, to bring you to the fulfillment of what he wants you to do with your life. No problem. Then he talks about, in verse number 30, the walls of Jericho falling. Impossible situation. Who can scale those walls? Did I forget to tell you? He's a God of the resurrection. Did I forget to mention that to you? It doesn't matter who your enemy is. It doesn't matter how great it is. It doesn't matter how much opposition is there. Faith in God who gives a promise and faith in a God who was faithful to His promise and the walls of Jericho are nothing to Him. And then the last part of the history of Moses is the story of Rahab in verse number 31. An unbeliever who believed. Oh, I like that one. Sometimes I'm having trouble getting believers to believe. (laughs) An unbeliever who believes. She's a citizen of Jericho. She's a prostitute. Not exactly the kind of person you want in your genealogy, but she's in the genealogy of Jesus. What a story this is. I mean, those two spies went in there and she took the spies in. And listen to what she says to the spies. We've heard about your God. We heard how he dried the rivers up. We heard about all the signs and the wonders. We heard about all of this. And we have no heart and we have no spirit to deal with you. I wish you'd go down to the enemy's camp and listen to him complain. Your future is bright. Your future is great. But on the, on, the, on the natural level, it looks like great opposition, great trials, great challenges, great difficulties. But if you're not convinced that he's the God of the resurrection, I want to tell you this, your enemy is convinced of it. And he is scared. They're afraid of what you're going to do. I thought you'd be excited. <laughs> He's the God of the resurrection. He is the God of the resurrection and an unbeliever believes and comes to peace with God. This is good stuff. You see, example 5, 6, and 7 out of the life of Abraham is the substance of things hoped for. But examples 5, 6, and 7 out of the life of Moses is the evidence of things not seen. The promise... And the power. The promise and the power. What's the main lesson that we're going to learn out of all of this? This is called a chiasm, what I just showed you. The center story is the truth. And this is what gives us the ability to interpret and understand this chapter. And the center story for both Abraham and Moses is that God is greater than death. Um, forgive me for repeating it, but I'm excited. God is greater than death. Death never, never, never gets the last word. Never. God raises the dead. 
So the believer logically reckons that if I should die prior to seeing the fulfillment of God's promise, then God is just going to have to raise me from the dead then. Which he will do when Jesus comes. And I will see every promise fulfilled. Death is no object to God. He, if he wants me to live, then I will live. He has the power to raise the dead, and he also has the power to keep you from dying if he so chooses that. Death is not sovereign. God is. And God controls the things. This chapter is full of examples. In verses 32, the first part of 35 of this chapter, it talks about people who have great victory by faith. It says, some by faith escape the edge of the sword. God is greater than death. Death couldn't claim them because God gave them great deliverance and great power. And yet, for the last half of verse 35 to verse 38, there were some people who wouldn't accept deliverance. They're being tortured for the faith as these people are looking forward to being martyred, possibly being martyred. These in, in Hebrews 11:35 to 38 were being tortured for their faith and they were given the ability to escape the torture if they would just renounce their faith. And you know what they decided? They decided God is greater than death. I'm not going to renounce. Take my life if you like. Death doesn't win. Because at the end of the story, there is a better resurrection to come. And I will be raised to die no more. So your threat of death has, is meaningless against the believer because death doesn't win. All you're doing is getting me to glory faster. Introducing me into the presence of the Lord. And that's a good thing. This is wonderful. And the Bible starts out, and Hebrews 11 starts out with Abel. The first example is Abel, a man who died a terrible death. But that's okay. He being dead, yet speaks, and God will raise him. And the next person is Enoch, who didn't see death. You see, God is greater than death. He will raise an Abel, and he will translate an Enoch. It makes no difference. God is greater than death. If God keeps you from dying, he's greater than death. And if death claims us, it makes no difference. God's going to raise you anyway. God wins. Either way, God is greater than death. And this is why we can have such confidence in faith. You serve a God that is greater than death. Just look at how this chapter is set up. Verse 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 7, is about Noah. Remember the story of Noah? When God brought judgment, in the midst of judgment, he provided a means of salvation. People were saved in the midst of judgment. Go down to 11.28, the Passover, God's bringing judgment. And people were saved in the midst of judgment. The story of Noah, the story of the Passover, teach the same truth. The same truth. Then we have already seen in chapter 11, verse 8, Abraham departs from home. And we've seen in 11.27, Moses departs from home. Same thing. We've already seen that they made a decision, verses 9 and 10. Abraham says, this world is not my home. And we've seen the same thing in verses 24 to 26. Moses says, this world is not my home. Do you see a pattern being developed here? And then you keep on going. Uh, you see in verses 11 and 12, God can bring a child out of death. And you saw in the life of Moses as well, God can bring a child out of death. It's the same thing. And then we see in verses 13 to 16 was the parenthesis 
that you and I are to focus on things to come. Having seen the promise of God far off, persuaded of it, embraced the promise, and confessed that we are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. Uh, We focus on things to come. And then we saw in verses 20 to 22, when, when Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau, and Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph, and Joseph mentions about his bones, they're focusing on things to come. Which brings us to the center of the, of the chapter, to the great ultimate truth. God is greater than death. God. That's called a chiasm. The Bible is full of patterns like that. God is greater than death. Now, as I bring this to a conclusion, let's remember something here. That we are talking about Old Testament people. Abraham and Moses, Old Testament people. They lived with far less privileges than you and I. They don't know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit indwelling them personally. They don't know that. They haven't seen the perfect sacrifice at Calvary yet. They're living before these things. They don't have the privilege of entering into the throne of His grace boldly like you and I do. Because the way had not yet been opened up. They lived with far less privileges than you and I. But the great truth is this. In chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, as this chapter ends, is this great truth. They're not going to inherit these promises without you and without me. We are heirs of the same promises. Can you just imagine that? You and I are sharing the same promise with Abraham. You and I are sharing the same promise with Moses. Look what Moses endured to get that promise. Look what Abraham went through to get that promise. You and I have been given the same promises and we are presented with the same challenges of life. Absolutely we are. But to them, everything was only found in the form of a promise. But to you and to me, there are two realities that you and I have that Abraham and Moses did not have. First reality is Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, died upon the cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, never to die again. Come on. Death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. It's not just a promise. It has already happened, past tense to you and I. There are people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead, but they were raised to die again. They went back to their mortal life. Jesus was raised never to die again. And death has been defeated once and for all. That's something that Abraham and Moses didn't have in their history. They look forward to it, but that's your history. Death has been defeated. Not only do we get this idea that God is greater than death, it's now a proven fact through the resurrection of Jesus. That's all the more reason for us to persevere through the challenges that our future has. And the second reality is this. Have I ever told you that I believe in the Holy Ghost? Have I ever told you that? 
The second reality is this. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And the Holy Spirit has been given as a down payment on all of God's promises. The promises are in the process of being fulfilled. That's the job description of the Holy Spirit. God is already, it's not all in the future, but He's already in the process of making good on His promises. I know what it will be like to be resurrected physically that day because in my spirit I'm already experiencing the resurrection power. Amen. Come on, shout, do something. You know, this is good stuff. I know that, that taste, I've already tasted the powers of the world to come. The Holy Spirit is already causing the promises of God to be fulfilled. I live in the time when God has already started to make good on His promises. There's a city whose builder and maker is God. There is a continuing city, an enduring city. There is a rest that remains for the people of God that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You and I are brothers and sisters of the Lord. And to make sure that you get to your inheritance, He became man. He became flesh to be touched with the feelings of your infirmities. To understand experience, by experience, all that you and I go through. There's no challenge, there's no trial, there's no difficulty that you and I can go through that he cannot personally identify with. And he took on human form to learn that about you. And now he is your high priest representing you to his father, making sure that he knows what you need and he has access to what you need and he can bring the two together. That is a privilege they didn't have in the Old Testament. You and I can't lose for winning. We can't go under for going over. It's called faith. We're his brothers and we're his sisters. And he has no intention of taking this inheritance without you and without me. Faith. And as we and I, we've got the promise. He's begun to fulfill the promise, but we're pilgrims and there's challenges. It's okay. God is greater than death. And that's what makes this chapter shine and come alive. If God be for us, who can be against us? Hallelujah. God's good. God's good.